Hello and welcome to IMI's Talking Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, Hugh Torpy, and today we are coming from IMI's National Management Conference. Over 200 senior Irish leaders were here to listen to the strategies and mindset needed to tackle the looming climate crisis under the theme, Sustainable Leadership, Sustainable Growth. We've got two world leading experts in their areas, Dr. Catherine Wilkinson, lead author on the New York Times bestseller, Project Drawdown, the most comprehensive plan ever proposed to reverse global warming, who talked to us about practical solutions leaders can make in any industry, whether as food, a service, or government. We then talked to Dr. John Briffa, a practicing doctor and award-winning health writer, who cuts through the myths when it comes to leadership well-being and how you can adapt strategies to optimize performance and productivity. We went into how leaders should think about aspects of their health like sleep, hydration, getting moving, and food. We begin with Catherine. So to begin, can you just talk to me a little bit Project Drawdown, the concept of Drawdown first, and then how you are tackling it? Yeah, so so the word Drawdown um, is kind of a you know, sort of a wonky scientific term. Uh, it means the point in time when the concentration of greenhouse gases, the heat-trapping gases in our atmosphere, stops rising, which it's been doing for quite some time, and actually begins mm. to decline. So drawdown is that turning point <laughs> from <laughs> more and more and more greenhouse gases to actually year to year mm. reduction of, of greenhouse gases. You know, we really believe that it is kind of one of the critical turning points for life on this planet. Yeah. Um, so our mission is about helping the world reach drawdown quickly, safely, and equitably. And part of the way that we do that is by focusing on solutions. Mm. The problem of climate change can just feel so overwhelming. Um, and so we set out to essentially gather humanity's collective wisdom about mm. tools and technologies and practices that we already have. They're proven, they're economically viable, they're scientifically valid, um, but they've never been put in mm. one place before. Um, mm. And we're continuing to do our research and our communication efforts around solutions, um, and, and really ultimately hoping to empower the solutionaries who move those things forward. So Catherine, welcome. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Um, one of the key themes that comes out from Project Drawdown is that there's no silver bullets. Mm -hmm. uh, the solutions will come cumulatively. How easy of a message is that to get across? Mm. Um, it's very hard to get people to change one behavior. How can we get masses of people to change masses of behavior? Yeah. It would be a much easier sell if there was one or two or five uh, silver bullets. You know, on the one hand, you can look at it and think, oh my gosh, I mean, there's so much that we have to do. The silver lining of the no silver bullets is, oh my gosh, there's so much mm. we can do. Mm. Um, and there's something here that lights me up. Maybe it's in my... Uh, sort of my life or at home, maybe it's in my community, my workplace, mm. something I am uh, am wanting from government or business at large. Um, so I think it's sort of nice that there are actually many entry points yeah. um, and, and many leverage points. And as a silver lining, the, the cause, cause is the wrong word, but climate change itself, it can be very much a unifying purpose for people within a company, right? Yeah, it's it certainly, you know, the, the company that I know best um, also happens to be really a, a leader on yep. this, which is Interface. And, um, you know, I think they were sort of okay, fair to middling on, yep, yep. on kind of engagement and culture 
before they took this on, but it's quite amazing how much they all feel like they are leaning together yeah. and sort of charging in the same direction. Um, and and even when you know, even when you've got someone who's sort of cleaning up the factory floor, they feel like they're they're part of that. Um, and so their yeah, their kind of engagement scores went off the charts, um, and they were able actually to attract a lot of talent oh, because of the mission, who might not otherwise ever have been interested in that industry. And what other side effects um, come about from when you when you set these goals within a company? You know. What's the sort of shifts that you see, innovation, what, what are the things that you see? Yeah, Interface uh, talks a lot about the impact that it had on, on innovation. Um, so for example, uh, they, they started to ask these questions around cutting down waste, right? And some mm. of that was around, well, we've got to tweak this, this process or this machine yeah. in manufacturing. But some of it was on the design side. So. They had a design team, this was kind of early in, in their, their work on, on sustainability, to look at, well, how does a forest make a floor, <laughs> right? Um, you know, we make a floor like this tile yeah. looks just like the next tile and the pattern's got to be in this way. But when they studied the floor of the forest, they were like, well, there are actually, um, there are no repetitions, right? And you could sort of pick up any part of the forest floor and stick it next to the other and it would be fine. So they created these patterns that could be pieced together. Tiles could touch any other tiles oh, okay, in yeah. pattern and it all worked, which also meant, you know, if you're a customer and you've got a stain, you just pop up that tile and put any other from, from, from that batch in and it all worked. So they were able to reduce the time of installation to reduce the cost mm. of installation and any waste from installation as well. It's interesting. I remember that I was told once that they, the helicopter was designed based on the dragonfly. Right? Ah, looking, yeah. looking to nature. Yeah, na- nature is like pretty incredible. Yeah. I mean, the fact that a caterpillar can become a butterfly, like we've got a lot to learn. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the revelations for me today, or maybe you'd call it a mindset shift, mindset shift is that I've stopped looking at my personal life in terms of what I can do with uh, sustainability and, and what I can do to impact the environment and started to work, look at how my personal job and my work impacts. Mm-hmm. Have you seen that mindset shift and what what effects does it have? Well, firstly, is it true? Do we have more environmental impact footprint in work than at home? Yeah, you know, I think in some ways it's <clears throat> it's sort of a bummer that we have spent so much time telling people you know, sort of things to tweak at home or yeah. um, or in their daily lives. Not because that doesn't matter. It, it certainly does matter. And, and what we see is that actually, you know, these behaviors open up kind of uh, cultural change, mm. right? When, when someone sees you doing something, well, maybe they're more likely to try it. Um, but nonetheless, you know, I think we've missed out on opportunities to say, hey, but actually what we need is for people to bring their superpowers to this yeah. work. Um, and you know, your superpowers may be being a storyteller, your superpowers may be in engineering, your superpowers may be as a teacher. Um, and we need all of those for this big transformation. Um, and so I cringe kind of every time I see the like, you know, five things you can do. And it's like, yeah, but you're yeah. not asking for the biggest thing of all, um, yeah. which, is, which is to take this on um, you know, in, in your work and, and with your, your talents. And you talked about there the superpowers. I, I suppose the superpowers that we had in the room today was leadership. 
So we had lots and lots of leaders in there. So I'd actually like to go through uh, just what they can do and what their greatest opportunities to change how their organizations are. So let's get into solutions, basically. Before we go into specifics, are there any general rules, guidelines, philosophies that leaders should keep in mind when applying the solutions like Project Rawdown have outlined many sure. of them into their unique situation? Yeah, I, you know, I think it's it is really helpful to remember that in part the climate crisis is a leadership crisis, right? Um, so leaders have a, a critical role to play, and I think one of the things you can get sort of stuck on is a sense that you've got to have it all figured out, mm. right? Um, so if you don't don't want to step out and um, you know make a statement or set a target because you don't know exactly how everything will yeah. will go or will work. And and I think the the truth is that no one knows how everything should go or will work in this moment. Um, and so we really do need that boldness of mm. leadership and, and a willingness to lead from a place of what you know is the right thing to do and then to rally, right, kind of yeah. rally the community, rally the organization around that work. One solution most closely associated with uh, a silver bullet is the global carbon tax. Yeah. It's something to push the economy away from carbon producing processes. I'm not so particularly interested in carbon tax. I'm actually more interested in regulations, rules, mm. governments pushing the economy. How much of a role is that going to have to play? Carbon tax, I think, has has an important role to play. Mm. Um, but what we see is that carbon tax works best in particular sectors, okay. so particularly electricity. Already, okay. um, and it works best with relatively advanced technology. Um, so if we tried to carbon tax our way uh, to where we are now on mm. solar power from the very beginning, it would have had to be a politically untenably high oh, carbon okay. tax, right? Yeah. So very targeted subsidies for innovation and development um, and and uh, an early adoption really helped that take off. Similarly, you know, on something as diffuse as uh, personal transportation, very hard to get a tax mm. that high, but a very targeted tax incentive for electric vehicles mm-hmm. works incredibly well. So I think it's, it's worth remembering that um, there are kind of different tools, different rule changes or regulations or incentives or taxes um, that may be the right thing in different sectors and depending on where a technology mm. sits. Um, you know, we're, we're in a place in the U.S. where it's, you know, we haven't been able to get a carbon tax passed even in states that are quite, uh, have strong democratic yeah. majorities. Um, so, you know, I think sometimes when we focus too much just on that, we are overlooking other opportunities that might be quite palatable and, and could lead to quick change. Again, it's so nuanced. It's uh, very complex. Um, I want to get into specific industries now, actually. Um, there are a lot of people in the room today uh, who represented some of the biggest food companies in the world. Mm-hmm. I know for a fact that many of them are working positively towards this sustainable future. Um, and they're making very tough decisions. Where do you personally see the future of food going, both in how we produce it and consume it? So I think food is really exciting because it is, <clears throat> it's, it's really the only sector where you can pull big levers on avoiding emissions mm. and big levers on sinking carbon. Um, so that gives the food world a ton of power. 
Um, also, it means there's just more complexity involved. And so big work to be done on shifting, uh, shifting diets towards kind of healthy, plant-rich yeah. diets. Um, big work to be done on reducing food waste. Mm-hmm. And then regenerative agriculture is this huge opportunity that, you know, it, what it does for the climate is that you're sequestering carbon and biomass and soil when you do that, you create healthier agricultural lands. You create more resilient food systems, um, all things you need when you're facing a changing climate. Um, and, and what food companies, I think, can help with there is that a lot of times farmers are being incented uh, to use practices that are not good for the planet. Um, and oftentimes they would like to move, actually, mm. towards a different sort of system, but can't finance that, right? Yeah. Um, it may take two or three years to kind of make the changeover. So doing some of that targeted support with yeah. farmers, and I think we see this with some of the kind of early organics companies and things, really building cooperatives of farmers and, and, and supporting them. Because um, I think farmers, I think sometimes feel like they're being painted as villains in yeah, this all yeah. of a sudden. But farmers have the capacity to be heroes in this as well. But I think we, we owe it to them to really help them uh, to do that. They're also going to be on the front line of many of the negative effects. They are. I mean, we, we've we seen... Um, there seems to be a big shift in American opinion based on farmers, really. Big shift, yeah. Um, you know, we've had these massive floods in the Midwest where you've got family farms that have been operating for generations yeah. who may not be able to bounce back. I, I live in Atlanta and in southwest Georgia, the damage from Hurricane Michael means, you know, pecan farms that have been yeah. passed down for generations, they're not viable anymore. Um, and so, yeah, really thinking about farmers as front lines for impacts and front lines for solutions, I think is is critical. I want to actually get into two very small things, but they really, they hit home for me. First of all, was the image of the cows grazing in woodland, Yeah, <laughs> which is so obvious. But it just, I, I've spent my entire life looking at cows and fields. I never <laughs> thought they could. Yeah. Um, my second one was actually the algae mm-hmm. um, that you talked about. Um, if you introduce 2% into the cow's meat, it how much does it reduce their methane? Yeah, so so this is all being tested in yeah. different parts of the world. But um, this Asparagopsis taxiformis, <laughs> this red algae seaweed. Yeah, studies have shown 2% of feed can reduce methane emissions somewhere in the range of 60 to 80 percent. That's very, very significant. I mean, hugely significant. Um, and, you know, then the question becomes, well, how do you grow, how do you grow seaweed at scale, yeah. right, to, to, to have that impact? But, yeah, I think it's it's a reminder that not all of this is about technology. Yeah. Silvopasture is an ancient farming practice. Yeah, yeah. Um, Seaweed is nature provisioned, right? Um, I presume seaweed would also have the double effect of catching more carbon. It should do, yeah. yeah. It was just, it really struck me. Um, my big question is why isn't everyone doing it? Like if, if Ireland were to put that on part of their agenda, we do produce a lot of methane, we're famous for our cattle. That seems a very quick, obvious solution. Yeah, um, I, I mean, I think it's a great, it's a great question. Um, <laughs> is it I, just that people haven't told, been told about it? I think sometimes it is just a matter of education, and I think you know we're creatures of of habit. Yeah. I, I have a dear friend who farms um, in Missouri, and and he's been testing some things with biochar and uh, and cover crops and uh, not tilling their fields. You know, and there are other farmers in the area who are like, 
what the hell are you doing, son? You know, like, they're like, uh, this is not, this is not the way we farm, you know? Yeah. And so some of it is, I think, doing also some of that kind of peer-to-peer education of like, look, this is working for yeah. me. This is working on our farm. Come check it out. And I think that can be really powerful. Let's move on to probably more representative in the room will be service companies, you know, mm-hmm. the banks, insurance companies, hospitals, charities. These aren't, they're not fracking, you know, right. they're not extracting <laughs> oil out of the ground. It seems less obvious what structural changes they can make to become more sustainable. What in simple terms can they do? And I know it's not simple terms, but what can they start to do? Yeah. So every company that I know of anyway is a consumer of energy. Yep. So thinking about where that's coming from, if there are opportunities to shift to renewables, mm-hmm. that's big. Um, things you can do to help employees not have to get in a car and not get in an airplane. Um, telepresence, remote working, yeah. uh, doing meetings by video rather than than in person if, if travel's involved. Um, also, most companies are having food at some point or another. So uh, thinking about making sort of plant-rich offerings the norm, uh, looking at reducing food waste and composting. These are, are definite opportunities. Um, <clears throat> I also think there's a huge role for companies to think about how they are culture makers, right? How they are communicating, what they're communicating. Um, Lots of opportunity there internally and externally through sales and marketing. Um, And, you know, I I think also to whatever degree companies are engaged with policymakers, Mm -hmm. that's another another intervention point. we can't do it all. We can't do it perfectly, but there are a, an abundance of ways to begin. And the good news is there's sort of no wrong place to start. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, you mentioned the public sector there. Again, they're well represented in the room. Um, probably have the most potential power to move the needle, but also probably have more obstacles than anyone else. Again, what levers should they be looking to press within the government structures? Yeah, I think we, you know, we think a lot about some of the things we were talking about earlier around kind of shifting regulation or taxes, but actually government does a lot of investment, right? So investing in early stage um, technologies, for example, that may not be market ready, right? Mm. Um, May not be a bet that that finance is willing to take, but government can. Um, I think think that can be incredibly uh, powerful. So incentivize the innovation as much as anything else. Yeah, that's right. Um, and governments are, they're big buyers, right? Yeah. They, they source a lot of energy. They own a lot of buildings. They own fleets of vehicles, yeah. right? These are all things that, uh, again, kind of government can be an engine of change that, that then ripples out from there. Planning and infrastructure is another, another huge yeah. area. I, it seems to me, especially when we just talk about that public sector, it needs leadership from the top because as civil servants sitting in their division in one corner of the country will feel powerless. Whereas if there's a big sort of concerted policy from the top, if everything we do is, has to be done through a prism of sustainability, it might actually happen. Yeah. So is that what's required in your organization? If a leader is listening to this out there, do they have to actually just set a goal? and then go for it. Yeah, I think leadership from the top is always incredibly powerful, but leadership from the top that also invites leadership mm. from, uh, you know, from, from the front lines of the organization. Um, you know, I think, I think what we're seeing in this moment of 
you know, I, I like to think that we're hitting a bit of a, a tipping point mm. on kind of public yeah. concern and engagement. And I think that's happened because you've got kind of grassroots movements, you've got political leadership in some places, you've got business leadership in other places, you've got education working on this more and more, and it's the confluence of all mm. of these things that's, um, that's really powerful. But I think unless really accelerated change is invited mm. or, or even sort of necessitated from the top, it can be very hard uh, for others to kind of move in the way that they might be yeah. quite passionate about doing. And I don't know if you'll be able to have an answer for this, but how much power should you give to uh, what I'm thinking about is the financial controller that you spent two grand more on a boiler because it's more sustainable. How much power should you give throughout the organization to make these sustainable decisions? I mean, I think there are there for particularly for companies that kind of haven't done much. There's a lot of low hanging fruit that will very obviously and and pretty quickly save them money. And I think it gets more complicated. You push further and it's like, well, maybe there's not an obvious Mm. financial return here, but this is still kind of the, the right thing to do. And I think remembering that financial return is also about employee engagement it's also about employee retention and attracting talent it's about goodwill in the marketplace and um, kind of consumer commitment so all of these things that are sometimes harder to measure um, also can can be a real financial upside super Um, I want to talk about one quick thing that I always love to listen to is the four-day week Ah, so (laughs) I'll take it it. yeah (laughs) It's, it's in a lot of headlines now, and it, it seems to be a, a solution for a lot of things. It's a nice, again, we're looking for messages. How does the four-day week play a role in that sort of messaging as much as anything else? Yeah, I think it is always really helpful when we have something that's like, you know, you say four-day week, and it's like, okay, got it. Yep, I sort of, I know what, what that means. Mm. Um, and, and there's often so much complexity in climate and and these solutions. Um, So I think things like that are powerful and people, you know, people see the upside to themselves Mm. quite immediately in that, um, you know, I know what I would do, right? Yeah. yeah. (laughs) With an extra day of sanity or (laughs) whatever. Um, Yeah. yeah. But do you think we we now have to start structuring how we work totally different in terms of working remotely, uh, even all gathering in the same building every day? Do you think, in 30 years time will just have to have changed totally. Yeah, I think there will be a, a lot of change. I mean, even at, at Project Drawdown, I, I've worked remotely from the start because um, most of our team was in, uh, in in the Bay Area in San Francisco. I'm in Atlanta, but actually um, we just in the last year gave up our office space um, because people were commuting quite far and yeah. actually they were finding that they were more productive oftentimes working from home. now. Sometimes that means folks need to sort of convene at a coffee shop yeah. or at a co-working space. Um, but it, it really has largely gotten rid of the, the commuting that, that we were doing. Super. So we started at the Project Drawdown, the most comprehensive plan ever proposed to reverse global warming. What's next? What's the, the next steps uh, for the project? So we're continuing to, uh, to kind of deepen and refine our research. We're adding some new areas of research, for instance, uh, solutions that are ocean or marine-based mm-hmm. solutions. Currently, uh, Dr. Sarah Myrie is, is leading our analysis in that space. We're also working more and more on partnerships. Um, so Intuit made a big announcement this week 
about not just going for carbon neutrality by 2030, but actually doing 50 times drawdown of their 2018 carbon footprint yeah. by 2030. Um, that's one of those goals that it's like, how in the world do we do that? Don't yet know, um, but we're going to be partnering with them uh, to, to, to help them figure that out. Um, and I'm really excited about kind of these, these kinds of collaborations that we're engaging in now of really trying to be on the bleeding edge of mm. what's possible and the bleeding edge of change and then hopefully being able to really learn some things and take those insights and, um, and kind of case studies and make them more widely available. Brilliant. Uh, Catherine, it was a genuinely incredible session. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for coming in here. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Hi, John. How's it going? I'm good. Thank you very much. So what's your theory of the case when it comes to leadership well-being? What's your elevator pitch, I suppose? Well, I think, you know, there are many uh, good, motivated, capable people out there uh, in industry and in business generally. Uh, but the reality is, I think, that um, however you know, capable and experienced and strategic you are, mm. um, however motivated you are, if there are issues around something as fundamental as your level of energy yeah. or your general well-being, you know, whether you feel good physically and mentally or not, um, then it is going to reflect on your performance. It's also going to reflect on your uh, feelings of satisfaction and contentment and it is probably going to ripple out elsewhere to, for example, other members of your team, maybe the organisation generally, generally, and possibly even uh, your partner if you have one, and kids if you have them. Mm. And so I think very often, you know, the idea of well-being, it's a soft term, isn't it? It's quite fluffy. Uh, health. Yeah, health. I mean, what does that mean? Uh, well, it, usually what it means is that when people don't have this, they know... You're a doctor, so you like, should know. Yeah, <laughs> Uh, and the end result is is that um, you know almost all bets are off once people have problems in these areas because mm. it's very difficult then to feel good, get the best out of yourself, get the best out of your day, feel like you're making forward progress, feel like you're adding value, and again this can permeate out to other people. Um, so I think it's it's pretty pragmatic really. Mm. Uh, managing your state physically and mentally is important if you want to have a good life both in work and also outside work. You talked a lot about sort of making, uh, let's just use the phrase well-being for now, mm. uh, personal, sort of matching what you do with what you as an individual need. Um, what I was thinking at the back of the room was, how do I figure that out? Um, how many glasses do I need a day? Or again, am I missing the point entirely? You are missing the point a bit. Perfect. So I used hydration as a classic example of where people give like sort of stock advice around yeah. this which is generally based around the idea that to be, well, everyone knows that hydration is important. It's mm. particularly important for a mental function, by the way. But, um, and even mild dehydration, you can cause significant mm. issues around things like concentration and uh, even mood. So we all know we need to be hydrated. How do we do that? Stock advice is this. You need to drink eight, eight glasses of water each day or two litres or whatever the prescribed amount is. But hang on a moment, you know, does someone who weighs 100 kilos need the same amount of fluid as someone who weighs 60? Mm. You know, if someone's done a ton of physical activity one day, would their need for fluid that day be the same as the day when they've done nothing? What about when it's warm and sunny compared to when it's cold? Are our needs for fluid all the same in all these circumstances? It cannot be two litres of eight glasses for everyone in every circumstance, can it? So 
what we need to do is judge our needs according to certain, mm. for example, symptoms or signs. And in the case of hydration, very often people are thinking, well, I'll drink when I get thirsty. Yeah. Fine in a way, you probably should drink if you're thirsty. The problem with that is that by the time someone is thirsty, they're usually really quite dehydrated. Way more dehydrated generally uh, than the level of dehydration required to compromise them, particularly mentally. So it's whether they've already gone way beyond yes, the line. Yeah, and athletes know this, by the way, because they haven't yeah. jumped into them. Once you get thirsty, whether you're running a marathon or cycling for 70 miles or whatever, uh, once you get thirsty, it's sort of all over. I mean, you can recover the situation, but you'll already have seen a deficit in performance. Mm. And it's the same, you know, uh, in a boardroom as it would be in a gym or running a marathon or whatever. Um, is there any advice, sorry, is there I'm any finished. advice? Oh, well, <laughs> sorry, keep, keep going, keep going. So, so the right amount of fluid to drink is the amount that it takes to keep you well hydrated. So he, what is the best indicator for the state of, for the, of the state of your hydration? The answer is the colour of your urine. If you're drinking enough fluid to keep your urine periolo throughout the course of the day, then you must be really well hydrated. Great. And is there any guideline, you, you say there's no, uh, no A cups, that's fine. Is there any that you should drink before you go to bed or as soon as you wake up? Or it's well, just when you first wake up, I think it's a good ploy because you're likely to be quite dehydrated, you know, um, for a couple of reasons, because I'm just about to advise people not drinking too much in the evenings. Yeah. Plus, you know, you've gone for you know, eight or nine hours without any fluid at all, probably. Um, so the problem with drinking in the evening is, is it tends to obviously appear as urine at some point. Yeah. And you, you know, as much as possible, you don't want to be getting up at three o'clock and five o'clock to go to the toilet. Mm. It's disrupting your sleep. So I generally encourage people to drink throughout the day and then stop it about dinner time. Okay. Yeah. Um, let's go on to another sort of fundamental um, that people are always obsessed with, um, sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't tell you how many friends of mine are obsessed with sleep apps. Yeah. Are those apps useful in your experience? They are. I mean, you can always... Um, obsess over them mm. and get neurotic about them and I don't advise that same with activity apps you know I've got to do my 10,000 steps and then yeah. you, you know doing laps around the living room at 11 <laughs> you know, to, to get the numbers up uh, so I don't think that's uh, good um, what I think they're really good for generally the app I think some uh, bits of technology are better than others um, but what they're really good I think uh, at is establishing a baseline so you can see what your sleep is broadly doing they're not blisteringly accurate, but nothing's blisteringly accurate, mm. do you know what I mean? Everything's got yeah. uh, a, a little bit of uh, inaccuracy to it. But anyway, you're using this app, uh, let's say, and you've got this um, idea of what your sleep generally does. And then something changes, like, I don't know, you drink, you have some alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not against al- alcohol, I'm not puritanical, I'm very liberal as a person, I drink myself. But the truth about alcohol, for example, is that it, it wrecks sleep. Mm. So just a couple of glasses of wine is usually enough to significantly disrupt sleep so that the now the pleasure of the alcohol is significantly outweighed by how they feel, if you like, the next day and then having to struggle through another day of work and then, you know. I find that with even just one drink, actually, at night for And that is not... It's often around the two drink mark. Yeah. You're probably like me, what, what we call a two pint screen or a two <laughs> I'm like this, but yeah. I certainly I was always like this. I'm particularly like it now. Um, and the problem with that uh, is, first of all, you know, it, it just makes the week very difficult. So I generally yeah. encourage people to, to uh, confine their drinking mainly to the weekend if they can. You know, if, if they're happy to do that. 
Um, but your question was about the ant. Mm. Well, the thing is, if you've got some sleep data that's gone on for the last three or four days, and you drink, and then you look at your sleep da data, and it's rubbish in comparison to what it was previously, that's difficult to ignore. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. So yeah. You, it's easier to ignore, oh, I just don't feel so good. That could be for a whole bun bunch of reasons. Yes. You may not even link it to the alcohol, but using an app of that nature, I think, makes it pretty obvious to people what's helping them and what isn't. And, and alcohol is a classic example of this. Loads of people I've seen uh, have problems with alcohol in terms of its impact on their sleep. They start using an app, they look at the data, because some people are quite data-driven, mm. and then they go, right, I don't think that's a very good idea. And it, so it helps then that person adjust their behaviour appropriately. So I think in this way, particularly sleep apps can be very helpful. Yeah. And you, you had a few key indicators, just sort of qualitatively, I suppose, that we can all look at ourselves and say, if we're using this, if we're doing this in the morning, that might indicate we have sleep debt. What okay, so indicators? some of the symptoms, the most, I think, useful symptoms of sleep debt. First of all, here's one question you'd ask, okay? Yeah. How many hours of sleep do I actually subjectively feel I need to be at my best? So, for example, let's say someone says, oh, I need seven and a half hours. And then the next question to ask is, how many hours of sleep do you get on average during the working week? And here's the usual answer. If it was seven and a half hours, it's optimum. It's six and a half hours. That's usual. Yeah. Well, then that probably tells you you're not getting optimal amounts of sleep, are you? And then there's other symptoms of this, like waking up to an alarm. Because mm. if you're waking to an alarm, you're artificially dropping yourself from sleep. I'm not against alarms. I'm not yeah, saying yeah. you should all run in the woods naked with loincloths or whatever. <laughs> I'm saying that if we're artificially dropping ourselves from sleep, we are probably not getting optimal amounts of sleep. Otherwise, we wouldn't use an alarm. we just wake mm. with energy. Yeah. And we, we've all had that feeling when we do wake up and it's 20 minutes before the alarm set to go off yes. and we, do have, we are full of energy. Yeah. We, can, we can feel uh, it. Yeah, that, that's right, and it can happen. Other things, that you're using the snooze function. Yeah. You know, how do you feel when you first wake up? Because when you first wake up, if, you're, if your thought is, oh, it's that time again, uh, that's not good. And if you're having to catch up on sleep, like some people do, which is a good tactic, that would also be a sign that there's something to catch up on, right? So probably you haven't had optimal mm. amounts of sleep. So this is way more important, I think, than saying we should get seven hours or eight hours or nine or whatever the prescribed amount is. It's mm. like hydration. You have to go with what your body is telling you and here are some ways that you might do that. Uh, we're probably going to tread some tricky ground here, but um, partners. So you may be set up, you're perfect, but then your partner goes to sleep and snores or kicks you in the feet. Yes. What's the, let's not give relationship advice, but yeah. for, for leaders... <laughs> What should they be thinking about, seriously, in those situations, if they're uh, being sleep-deprived every day yes. by their partner, yeah. should they really have put an actionable strategy into yes, place Yes, probably. There? I mean, look, uh, there's a number of different things here. So, first of all, uh, I'm not about to give relationship advice. I don't <laughs> think it is unreasonable for people to have separate bedrooms, at least some of the time. Yeah. I don't think that's unreasonable. A lot of people do it. I'm not going to shout about it, but I can tell you, having spoken to literally thousands of people, mm. a lot of people take that tactic. Okay, so that's fair enough. But there are simpler ways of doing it, okay? Um, so here's a classic. People having their sleep disturbed by someone coming into the bedroom later than them. Now, a classic example of that, by the way, I'm glad you brought it up, is me and my other half, Sandra. Mm. So I am a out-and-out -out lark. I get up early in the morning, 
and I'm spent at about half ten. Forget <laughs> it. You can't get me. I mean, I will if forced. I can socialise a bit grumpily, yeah. <laughs> but basically, I'm just no good in the evening. So I go to bed early. Okay. I often go to bed at the same time, by the way, as my five-year-old daughter. No. Oh. Okay. So we often go to bed together. Okay. My wife, on the other hand, is an out and out owl. Mm. She's Portuguese. A lot of them are a bit this yeah. way. They don't like getting up in the morning. Uh, but they're very good in the evening. She does her best work then and she has some time to herself and all that. I get that. So my tactic is simply this. Okay. It's not too um, <laughs> high tech. Yeah. I wear earplugs and I put eye shades on. For the most part, sometimes it can be a bit of disturbance. Yeah. I have no idea what time she comes to bed. But it is a discernible tactic that you've. That's right. Chosen, and I presume you've talked about it with her and you've, you've come well, up with actually, a plan together. Uh, it partly came about when my daughter was born. And, um, you know, my, my wife breastfeeds and obviously a child is waking up in the night to feed. Mm. And we're the best one in the world. And I'm ah, like, I, can, I, I, I can start I, to I, see I, the origins. There's no point in me knowing about that, is there? I mean, if she's sick, bear mm. in mind I'm a doctor, I probably need to know about it. Yeah, yeah. But if she's just woken up because she needs feed, I don't need to know about it. It really started then, actually. So I started, right, earplugs, eye shades. You do what you like. We're all in the same bedroom together. Mm. But I never had my sleep disturbed. Now, when it's important, I'm very happy to have my sleep disturbed. Because if my daughter was unwell or my wife was... We've never had this situation. Yeah, I yeah. can't remember one. But if it were to happen, I have full trust that my wife would go, you need to wake up and look at this and give an opinion and what should we do? That notwithstanding, what's the point of me being awake to, I don't know, lie awake straight at the ceiling while there's mm. some breastfeeding going on? So I don't, it's not that I'm not empathetic, it's just that there's no point in two people having their sleep disturbed. So that's where it started, by the way. Now my daughter sleeps through the night, we never have any interrupted yeah. sleep. The only thing that can really interrupt my sleep is only the own thoughts that I have whizzing around in my head, or my wife coming into bed about three hours after I have and disturbing my sleep that way. And... I've just found a solution to it. And it's a solution, by the way, that other people might consider. Yeah. Earplugs and eye shades. Just on that, I know it's a bit specific. No, the, the, the earplugs need to work and they need to be comfortable. And the best ones I've found are actually French. Okay. They're called Kiers, Q-U-I-E-S. The foam Kiers um, earplugs are found almost always work for people. So they deaden the sound nicely, but they're very comfortable. And then for the eye mask, um, you can't have a mask really that's touching the eyes um, because most people find that uncomfortable mm. and will want to take it off. I, I, yeah, I can. Okay. Yeah. So there are eye masks that are essentially scalloped out so mm. that you know the pressure's around the eye, not on the eye. And, and that's a good idea. I've got one in my bag. Airplugs are my constant travel companion. Yeah. The other thing, by the way, that I've found is that it's quite useful to have airflow in a room. Yeah. You know, air quality is quite important. Otherwise, you sort of, you're under oxygenated through the night. So I usually keep the window open. So get rid of that old wild so tail of the draft. So when I stay overnight here, I keep the window open. But the thing is, is that if, if I've got earplugs in, and eye shades on, I'm not disturbed by anything. I've kind of, I'm in a little cocoon which is a good state to be in. And I'll just tell you, last night, even though it's an unusual place, and I've supposedly got the stress of the travel to get here and a big event the next yeah, day, yeah. my sleep score was 93 oh, there you go. out of 100. And my readiness score was also 93. I'll tell that to the IMI conference center <laughs> residents over there. They'll put it on the website. Yeah. Yeah, before we move off to sleep, actually, one interesting thing was the amount of sunlight in a day yeah. affects the amount of sleep you get at night. Can yeah. you just explain that? Because it really helps. Yeah, so one of the things that sunlight does uh, it sort of regulates uh, sleep through something called the suprachiasmic 
uh, nucleus, which is a part of the brain. But another effect of light is to stimulate the production of something called serotonin, which is a, you know, a, a brain chemical, neurotransmitter, that generally induces happiness and contentment. Yeah. Okay? Light also basically makes people more alert and improves their mental functioning. But at the end of the day, serotonin is actually converted into something called melatonin, which is our, if you want, sleep hormone. So if you haven't had enough light during the day, you may be deficient in melatonin at night and therefore have your sleep impaired. This is massively compounded, by the way, by using devices that give off a lot of the blue part of the spectrum of light, like smartphones do this, tablets, uh, laptops, which suppresses melatonin. Mm. So there is software that takes blue light out of uh, devices. It's built into iOS, for example, there's something called Nightshift. Uh, there's something called F.Lux or Flux mm. uh, that does the same job for computers, whether it's a Mac or a PC. Um, but it's very difficult to make sufficient quantities of melatonin if you haven't had sufficient light. Um, so a, a very simple remedy sometimes for having people feel better during the day is to get more light. They sleep better at night and then consequently feel better in the day again. It. But it really depends on light. But when you think about it, it's obvious. We are outdoors animals, even though we spend about 90% of our time indoors. We are an outdoor mm. animal. Uh, you know, in our, if you like, from an evolutionary perspective, and now we've come in and you know, using artificial lights and being too far away from windows and all sorts of stuff, and no sense of nature. Actually, here at the IMI, we are looking at us here, very nice. Know, it's like you're in, um, you know, a park. It's <laughs> nice. Yeah. Um, but you know that fundamental lack of light isn't usually too much of an issue around spring and summer, uh, but come the winter, usually it's starting to affect at least some people, and so to. To remedy this, being mindful of the need for light, getting some on the way into work if you work, maybe some at lunchtime as well to mm. sort of top up can be helpful. There are also light devices that can be helpful, beyond the scope of this discussion maybe. But it is a surprisingly important area, just I think undervalued, partly because it's free. Mm. Uh, don't... Well, yeah, yeah. It's best things in life are free yeah, and all that sort of thing. Yeah. So we've gone through hydration and sleep. Um, let's actually, before we move on to the last one, let's quickly touch on food yeah um, you went into a lot of practical strategies on eating patterns but i want to focus yeah. on the one that everyone will remember yeah. breakfast the most important part of the day yeah prove me wrong why is not the case well uh the theory behind it is that you know if you eat dinner and you finish at eight mm. and you wake up and it's eight o'clock the next day you've gone for 12 hours without food clearly you're in deficit and if you did that during the day you'd probably be starving hungry you must be in yeah. deficit you need fuel or otherwise you're going to have no energy and fall over and you know faint or whatever it is um, but the reality is is that there is a very very significant proportion of people who do not eat breakfast and neither need it in the sense that they're not hungry in the morning and they go right through the morning with good levels of energy and mental concentration with no issue so if that is the case, what are they living off? And there may be some caffeine going in, but fundamentally what they're living off is fat, their own fat mm. I'm talking about. And so when you think about it, shouldn't the body be able to burn its fat in times of need, like when you're not eating? Mm. And what's getting you through the night? Well, to a large part, certainly the second half of the night, it's your fat again. Yeah. So if you trade on that and you go through the morning and you're not particularly hungry, a lot of people think, well, you're underfueled. You're not underfueled. You may be underfed maybe, but you're not underfueled. And when you talked about restricted eating, 
Yeah. Um, can you explain that concept a little? Because so I, the, I think it feeds So into this it. is what we call time-restricted eating, where someone is eating within a relatively narrow window. If you look at when someone first starts to consume calories in the day and when they stop, mm. that window, this is data from America, so it may not be the same in Ireland, but that data shows that it's something over 15 hours. That's a very wide window. You're hardly not eating then, mm. and you're hardly not experiencing, for example, relatively low levels of the hormone insulin, and you do want insulin generally to be low. Um, so some people say, look, if you can contract the window, it's going to be beneficial. And we have, honestly, a ton of evidence now, both in animals and humans, that shows it has very broad benefits in terms of the physiology and biochemistry of yeah. the body. It is generally beneficial to do that. Okay. Plus, and here's the thing, you know, if you can't do it because you get too hungry, then it's not for you. But people who can do it and do do it feel better. Almost universally, they have more energy, they get more done, uh, they're more productive, uh, they often need less sleep. I'm not saying people should get less sleep. I'm just saying for a given level of restlessness, they'll generally get by in about an hour less sleep is what I've found. So the body seems to recover better and sleep better when people are, are contracting that window a bit. So that's the argument for it. Mm. Now, I wouldn't be rigid about it and not everyone needs to do it or can do it actually. But for the most part, either delaying breakfast and or eating earlier dinners and contracting that window maybe to, I don't know, 12 hours or 10 yeah. hours eight hours or whatever works for the individual and again you can have some flexibility around this is generally beneficial i found it consistently true it's the exact opposite of what i anticipated when i first heard about this in 2006 when i thought that is totally mad yeah and i've been in nutrition and um you know performance related uh, work for a long time but i just had a kind of unconscious bias around it or actually quite conscious bias around it and just went that would be totally mad i have now found um having worked with literally hundreds of people, maybe thousands, that one of the most potent weapons we have in nutrition is not eating. It's hmm. interesting. Okay, you, you, in your presentation today, you had uh, multiple solutions, but we're not going to go through all of them. But I want to go through one last one, which is yes. movement. Yes. Um, we all lead sedentary lifestyles nowadays. Um, I don't believe those people on Instagram that say they're rock climbing on a Tuesday. What are the effects on our health here of being sedentary people? Okay, so one fundamental effect uh, is that you have sort of engines within cells called mitochondria. These are like um, sort of capsule type, tiny little cap. They're actually an ancient bacteria originally. Uh, but what they do basically is generate energy. And if we're very sedentary, there's really no need to make mitochondria. But mitochondria, to a certain degree, determine your energy, your health, and your longevity. Mm. So the being very inactive basically allows these things to wear out and die without being replaced. And the end result is potentially, you know, low energy, poor health and reduced lifespan. Um, now, m many individuals are not really thinking necessarily about lifespan or whether they're going to get heart disease in 20 mm. years. Uh, sedentary behaviour, or let me put it another way, activity appears to improve, of course, general well-being, but particularly mental well-being and mental function. Mm. You know, it stimulates blood supply to the brain. It also uh, can stimulate the production of certain brain chemicals. It can also st uh, stimulate the production of something called BDNF, or brain-derived neurotrophic factor. What does that do? It um, protects the brain from damage. It stimulates the production of brand-new brain cells. You know, there's a there's myriad benefits that are had from physical activity. So it is impractical to be rock climbing on a Tuesday, 
Uh, it's impractical for a lot of people to be in the gym for an hour or two most days. But what the studies show is that even quite brief periods of physical activity can be hugely beneficial for both mental health and mental well-being, as well as overall health. Mm. I mean, just to give you an example, uh, some work done in Canada has compared 10-minute exercise regimes, I'll explain it in a moment, uh, three times a week, so that's 30 minutes of exercise, with 150 minutes of running, two and a half hours of running each week. And the benefits are the same in terms of markers of fitness and mm. functioning of insulin and stuff like that. And so the regime simply, um, it's called the one-minute workout, it's 10 minutes actually, but it's a two-minute warm-up, say on a bike, yep. um, and then you sprint all out for 20 seconds, ease off for two minutes, sprint for 20 seconds, ease off for two minutes, sprint for 20 seconds, then warm down, cool down over three minutes, so that's 10 minutes. The one minute comes from the three 20-minute bursts of activity. That, done three times a week, is as beneficial, it seems, overall, it may vary from person to person, but overall is as beneficial to health and well-being as three 50-minute runs. And actually, that 30 minutes total activity, when you look at it and you tease away at it, you realise it's actually only three minutes of intense physical activity mm. a week. Okay, So I think what happens with a lot of people is that in their mind they're thinking they have to do a hell of a lot of physical yeah. activity to enjoy benefits from it. And I do like it when someone can find joy in exercise and they love doing a two-hour cycle on a Saturday or they love running for half an hour with their teenage son, whatever it is, if yeah. that's them, great. But there is sometimes a case for being quite functional around exercise because often the bar is set so high for people here, they can't get over the bar regularly. Mm. And so sedentary behaviour is now their new norm. They've got very lofty aspirations very often. I understand this, you know, having been a runner and rugby player myself. I understand how sometimes you might think, I have to get back to those levels yeah. of physical activity to be fit and healthy. But I encourage people to let go of all of that stuff, okay? We and can't let go of our dreams. I yeah, still yeah. may be a professional footballer. Okay, right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm the same. You know, I, the other day, I, I was in Portugal with a, a, someone who's in my year at school. He's now a, a very senior police officer. And I really like him, and we're, we're very good friends. I mean, we have, he was a very good rugby player, very good open side, if you know rugby union. Mm. And, um, but he still plays rugby. So he's my age, he's 53. He plays tight head now. And he's talking to me, so I've gone off on a tangent here, but he's talking to me <laughs> basically about would I be up for playing a bit of veterans rugby? Now, veterans normally means above 35. Yeah. We're in our 50. <laughs> so I don't know what he means by veterans, but anyway. Um, and I'm half talked into doing it as well, you know, before a bottle of sanity hit me and I, you know, deflected the conversation <laughs> elsewhere. Forget about all that stuff. Yeah. The important thing is not what you did, what we'll do now. So, for example, if you were to do three 10-minute regimes like I've just described, and let's say you did, I don't know, 20 or 30 press-ups and squats each day, how long does that whole thing take? I mean, over the course of the week, you're probably looking at about an hour's exercise, max, yeah. pops, okay? And the chances are now you are going to be in a very good state of health and fitness, okay? Did it take a hell of a lot of time? No. What it took, like with most habits, is a sort of consistency. You just keep doing this. Now, if you get on your bike for two hours, or you get to kick the footy around on a, uh, on a Sunday, play a good game, you know, 90 minutes or whatever. Uh, good for you. But that's not the baseline. The baseline is something else. And then anything you do in addition to that is like the, the cherry on the top of the cake, yeah. if that makes sense. And it's sort of uh, just talking about football, it's better to do a couple of exercises during the week than do one 90-minute match of the consistent exercises. Generally, but I'm not sure you're thinking about this quite the right way. Yeah, yeah. Because you could say it doesn't need to be two one-hour sessions, for example. 
you could say, look, could I just do, I don't know, 20 or 30 press-ups each day, every day? How long does that take? The answer is two minutes, mm. okay? And could I, for example, commit to three 10-minute bursts of activity, right? And now you've got actually quite good spread. Most people walk quite a lot, actually. Yeah. Um, so you've got a good level of activity there as well. Now, really, all your bases are well covered, and you've got nowhere near a gym, by the way. Small, quick tangent on walking. Do you have to walk at pace? Do you have to get your heart rate up for it to have real effects? Uh, no, I think you'll get, uh, most people will get benefit, and the studies show this, from really any level of walking. A bit faster is probably a bit better. But um, it is not, again, so much the, con- the intensity of the physical activity that's important, it's the consistency. Mm. The other thing, that there is pretty good evidence that when you look at, I don't know, the impact of exercising for half an hour a day, and you compare that to the impact of, say, exercising for two 50-minute sessions mm. or three 10-minute sessions, it's basically all the same. The benefits are the same across the board. And so the general uh, uh, conclusion is from this that it's not uh, so much continuous physical activity that's important, it's cumulative physical activity. Yeah, okay. So I've relaxed a little bit about the intensity of it and whether it's being done in large chunks. I know that's not what you asked, but that is sometimes a thought <laughs> no, for right. people. Well, if I'm not walking for half an hour, what's the point? Yeah. Well, there is a point. It all counts, even in small amounts. So once you have that, you're a bit more relaxed about it, and you realise you can get to very good levels of fitness and health with about, I don't know, half an hour's exercise mm. a week, or maybe an hour. And just think of that in the context of your 168-hour week. You might say... No, that is actually doable. We're going to finish on looking away from looking inwards and sort of looking at people around us. I like you to particularly think of this as, you know, a board member looking at their CEO or their CEO looking at their head of finance or head of marketing or whatever. What sort of signs they should be looking out for where someone's performance is going down and a strategy should be put in place to bring it back up? Well, I think, to be honest, I think these things are pretty obvious. So if you have worked with someone for any length of time, more than about two weeks, if you um, have an interest in other human beings and are not completely an island and, you know, can actually Mm. engage with other people and have a relationship that hopefully goes beyond just Just numbers and profession, I mean, the best leaders are usually quite relationship-led people. They may be very good transactors, they may be great executors, but they're generally relationship-led people. Yeah. Because, you know, whatever it is, the board or exco, the senior leadership team, um, you know, other people, you know, it demands relationships, Mm. okay? So usually, although these people may have very good, what we call left brains, and be very rational and logical and whatever, there will be an element of them that is an that that enables them to connect with other people at another level, and therefore for those people it is generally pretty obvious when someone isn't right. Yeah. But should there sorry to cut across yeah. you, should there be formalized structures or even a check in every year that you as a leader maybe say okay actually next year I'm going to do a mental health check and a, a physical health check. I, I don't really think it requires that. I think that's very sort of. Um, Prescriptive. Prescriptive, yeah, that's a good word. Um, I'm a great believer in people being left to their own devices if they're doing fine. And don't keep screening them for stuff, okay? What you should have, ideally, in an organisation is a culture that allows people who are struggling a little bit to be supported in whatever it is that they need. Now, first of all, that demands, I think, leaders encouraging a culture where people are interested in other people beyond the strict 
uh, confines of their role. Yeah. Like, you know, it shouldn't be forced, it should come from the... So, you know, like I came here, so my dad was quite unwell recently, and so a couple of things sort of slipped a little bit, inevitably, yeah. and I've explained this in an email, you know, without too much detail, but I almost lost count of the number of people who knew about that, who asked me about it. Here at the IMI, I'm talking about IMI people. Mm. What's that a sign of? That's a sign of a culture that isn't just about execution and delivery. It's also about people. Yeah. And I didn't feel any. First of all, I, I didn't feel at any point where someone said, "Well, you're just asking about that because you feel you have to." Now, in that context, okay, if you have that sort of culture, then when somebody's struggling a little bit, then they possibly feel more open about saying, "We've got a bit of a personal issue at home that I'm struggling with." Yeah. Or that you might go to one of your colleagues and say, look, something's happening. It could be anything. It could be work-related. It could be divorce. It could be a child's unwell or whatever it is. You need that. Now, it's not necessarily the person's job to be the counsellor or doctor or whatever. But if there is some structure, if you like, in place to help those individuals, then having a culture that allows people to disclose what's going mm. on for them without judgment and without stigma is generally helpful. Uh, this, by the way, I think is changing very significantly, if I'm going to leave on a sort of high note. Yeah. High note. I mean, historically, I think this wasn't very important. It was all a bit touchy-feely, and, you know, we're not going there. And yeah. uh, what are the numbers, and did you hit your targets, and, you know, yeah. spreadsheets and stuff. <laughs> uh, but this is changing. There's no doubt about that. Um, I think both in terms of uh, what business priorities are and looking after the people, but also, you know, I think there's a change in the way uh, people uh, frame the concept of sustainable leadership mm. and what is really effective leadership. And so everything's drifting in the right direction, probably not quite as quickly as it could, okay, uh, but I'm very optimistic for the future. Uh, and it's great that people are able to have conversations now at least about, you know, mental health and stress and how we might manage it better. Um, I, I think organisations in a way have an obligation to look after people and many more organisations are doing that and, you know, year I've worked with about 30 organisations where they've obviously thought about it and want mm. to do something in that area, which is all fine. But I also am a great believer in personal responsibility. Yeah. Is that, you know, there's only so much other people can do for you. Ultimately, to a certain degree, uh, I think it's very helpful for, for people to be upskilled in a way so that they can support themselves, either around lifestyle habits or even their thinking, mm. as I discussed uh, in my session earlier. Well, it was an absolutely fascinating session, as always, John. Um, Dr. Briffa, thank you so much for coming. Thank you, Hugh.